welcome to the panel on RNZ National. We have Nikki uh, Bazant and Nick Leggett with me today. And keep that those budget wish lists coming because what we're going to do is we're going to splice them through the show tomorrow afternoon. Now here's one. Budget 2023. Free residential solar and batteries for remote poor communities, i.e. microgrids owned by those communities, so they're not cut off for long periods during a national emergency. Mm, interesting idea, eh? Text me 2101, email thepanel at nz. the budget wish list for you. First up, though, the Prime Minister has today asked the Housing Minister to look at whether building regulations for high-density accommodation are fit for purpose in the wake of the devastating fire at Loafers Lodge yesterday. There is growing focus on fire safety in multi-storey occupied buildings and whether or not the building codes are still fit for purpose in New Zealand. Now, the Housing Minister confirmed the Loafers Lodge was issued a building warrant of fitness in March. Megan Wood saying the building passed a council inspection earlier this year, uh, saying, quoting, under the Building Act, a building such as this was not required to have sprinklers. So this building complied with all its obligations that it needed to fulfil as a building as recently as early this year and was issued with its building WAF on the 3rd of March. Well, our next guest has focused and indeed written on fire safety within multi-storey dwellings. With us is Dr Colleen Wade, Director of the Fire Research Group Limited. Dr Wade, kia ora. Uh, good afternoon. Yes, and as I said, you wrote an article about this, uh, co-wrote uh, in 2021, and as the number of multi-storey apartments grows... Um, you know, for example, we here at RNZ are surrounded on all sides by uh, quite high apartments. The issue will be top of mind for many. And acknowledging what happened in Wellington yesterday, what can you tell us about this issue? Um, sure. You know, as you say, there's been a lot of um, uh, emphasis on, on, on densified housing and, and building taller buildings. And, and perhaps looking um, specifically at um, apartment buildings, what we tend to do with fire safety is to provide you know, a range of different um, strategies. And we've, we've um, heard sprinklers being mentioned, yes. um, I think, quite often recently. That really is the biggie, and it's really important, especially as buildings get taller. Um, now, sprinklers are very effective at controlling the fire. They'll often put the fire out. Um, but they're costly, so we have to weigh up the cost, you know, versus the added safety that they uh, provide. Um, and currently, uh, you know, for buildings above about eight or nine storeys, that's when the sort of mandatory um, sprinkler requirements uh, kick in in the terms of our building code acceptable solution. Um, and below that height, they are sort of optional, and you can get um, you can get benefits by doing it and, and other flexibilities in the design of the building if, if you do sprinkler. So don't want to speculate so much on the specifics here because information is still coming out, isn't it? Uh, but coming back to that, many people were surprised that no sprinklers were required in this building. What of that, Colleen? And what do you think, if anything, needs to change regarding our building standards uh, under the Building Act? Um, I, I do think it's something that needs to be uh, looked at. Um, in the research that I've done, and I um, specifically have also looked at, you know, the level of fire resistance, and you know, providing fire safety is really a balance of different um, strategies. So, you know, I mentioned sprinklers; that that's a big one, but they're not enough on their own. 
Right. I, and, you know, I think more, um, you know, certainly there's a need um, for fire detection systems, fire alarm systems. Uh, we're pretty much going to find those in buildings of, of all heights, you know, especially if we're looking at uh, apartment buildings. And they're also really important because, you know, the sooner fires are detected and reported, then you know, the more time people have to get out um, and the earlier the fire brigades can get there. Um, but in terms of looking at taller buildings, I think we're potentially, you know, a bit vulnerable. Um, you know, while we have quite a good fire record, um, I think compared to other countries, there's, there's a few areas which um, we do fall a bit short. And, and one of those is this kind of fire resistance level. And I guess I'm particularly concerned about buildings that would be in the 10 to 20 storey um, range. Um, and although these buildings, they would require sprinklers, the actual level of, of fire resistance that they require is um, typically only maybe one third to one quarter of, of what that same building might require you know, in places like Australia or really? Canada or one England. Th- one third to one quarter? That's, that's correct, yeah. So um, it's possible to do, um, you know, sprinkled apartment building, you know, even up to 20 storeys with only a half-hour fire rating. Oh. Um, and okay. so that, that's a concern. Um, now, um, Colin, I'll, uh, let's bring in our panel. And I know, can I, can I if you don't mind me saying, you've talked about uh, living in an apartment before on the panel, Nikki. Can I ask you, uh, your apartments, uh, do they have sprinklers? No, actually, and I'd be interested in Colleen's um, sort of perspective on this. I, I live in a, in a heritage building of, it's actually five, five stories, six stories, um, which does not have sprinklers, but we have other fire detection things in place. But I'm interested, actually, Colleen, in the retrofitting of sprinklers to older buildings. Is that even possible? And I imagine if it is, it's probably pretty expensive. Look, anything is anything is possible if you, if you throw enough money at it. Right. Um, so I mean, it's, <laughs> it, it, it you know it comes down to competing um, priorities. Um, now you know there's other ways to um, ensure you've got adequate safety in the building. Not you know apart from sprinklers. And I've mentioned the, the smoke alarms and, and smoke detection. You know, having um, clearly escape uh, marked escape routes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Lower building, the low-rise buildings may have, or well, certainly have at least one stair. As the yeah. buildings get taller, um, more likely, you know, you're going to have two stairs. So you've got you know, options in terms of um, how you get out, and just controlling the the combustibility of the materials, um, you know, in, in the corridors and the stairs is, is you know, all helpful as well. Uh-huh. So you know, while you know sprinklers are um, probably the biggest thing you can do in terms of step change and fire safety. Um, you know, there's other things that can also make um, the building safe as well. Okay, Nick Liggett. I think what this speaks to me, well, it says a few things. The first is that we want to build our density uh, in New Zealand. So people living closer together in, in shared buildings uh, is, is going to become more of a thing and as a result of that we do need to think about the standards that are in place and not just standards for fire resistance and fire safety but actually also insulation but I won't go down um, that path but I'm interested to know 
when Colleen talks about fire resistance and the fact that our standards appear to be lower here than, for instance, our neighbours, what does that actually mean? Is that like about, is that a, that's a construction standard, obviously, that prevents fires from spreading? Is that, is that right? That, that's correct. So fire resistance is, um, it's something that we can measure. It's measured in a standard fire test. Um, and it's a measure of how long uh, a particular construction, you know, whether it's a wall or, or a fire door or, or a column, how long that can actually withstand the effects of the fire and, and you know, stop right. the fire spreading. Um, so that's, yeah, it's, 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 it's pretty common. So it typically can be anything from um, 30 minutes up to, you know, two or three hours even. And we in New Zealand fall short on that compared to our neighbours, in fact, significantly I think, short. I th- and I, but I'm, I am specifically um, looking at those taller buildings. Yeah. I think in the, the buildings, you know, up to the seven or eight storeys, we're um, probably fairly comparable and the, the fire resistance levels there, um, I think, are reasonable. I think we're just a little bit vulnerable when it comes to those taller buildings. Very good to have you on the program, uh, Dr. Wade. Kia ora. Really appreciate your time. That's Dr. Colin Wade there, Director of the Fire Research Group Limited. It's 17 past for the panel, uh, NZ National. Now, Wakakotahi has not been factoring climate change and the need for resilience into many of its transport projects and is said to be swamped by the need to respond to crises, reports RNZ. Now, the basis of its National Resilience Programme Business Care case, a report from 2020 which looks ahead to 2050, The roads are ticking time bombs, I'm quoting here, with landslides, rockfall, coastal inundation and sea level rise, flooding and earthquakes essentially guaranteed to take them out of action, leading to long-term outages. As a result of the failure to account for increasing hazards, the cost of emergency work is skyrocketing. With us to comment is Dr Tim Welsh, School of Architecture and Planning at Auckland University, comments also around things on transport and urban planning. Dr. Welsh, kia ora. Kia ora. Thanks for having me. Uh, the business case was written way before Cyclone Gabrielle, but <laughs> it's fairly blunt speaking. What do you make of it? You know, this is kind of putting on paper things that we feel like we've already known for a long time. Uh, we tend to put a lot of our eggs in one basket, focusing on roads, and a lot of those roads are pretty vulnerable. So we know that we don't have much resilience to a cl- coming climate change. Yeah, what else did I say? Resilience, not usually a priority. But, Tim, is it difficult for a council to prioritise future-proofing an investment when you have to sell to the public a higher rate space? Yeah, I mean, it costs a little bit more now uh, to build in resilience, and that can be a hard sell. Uh, but it also means that if we don't do that now, we pay exorbitantly more in the future to fix the infrastructure, uh, and we'll look at even bigger bills if we want to build in that resilience uh, later down the road. Well, Tim, we've got someone who's directly affected. Uh, in fact, we're all directly affected because most of us get our goods. Uh, for example, our bread by truck, uh, and uh, Nick Leggett's here. Nick, you know, some of these extreme risks to the National Roading Network are not thought to be fixable, uh, the, the report's saying, with any new engineering, 
work pointless in the face of climate mm. change. And do you think that, in a sense, we're already seeing a bit of this? For example, those constant issues in the Brindirwins. Yeah, I think this is something that we've got to face up to as a country, and it's very hard to do that because if you're a community uh, that's connected by a road and that road is looks like it's going to constantly fail, there's a choice there, isn't there? It's either you keep fixing the road, knowing that it's probably not going to survive long um, between events, uh, or you say, look, we're not going to do it anymore as the, the government or Waka Kotahi or the council, and, and, well, we know what the result of that is. We'll see people who you know can no longer live where they live. So um, very difficult conversations, and I would say it's not just road. I mean, I think rail has significant uh, exposures here as well, and I, I say that um, with concern because obviously single point of failure means that you know rail can be knocked out out. And we, we, I think we've we've defined the problem relatively well, but this is about funding. And if you look at the National Land Transport Fund between 21 and 24, over 90% of that funding was committed to existing projects, you know, be it road, rail, maintenance, PPP payments, existing projects. This is a political argument, and in election year, what we need to be saying, not just to the government, but also also to the opposition, is where are your funding priorities? Councils and, and government, we need probably to spend more, but we have to be really smart about where we do that. Where are the strategic parts of the country that need this resilience? Okay, I want to get to, to, back to Tim, but Nikki, you come in first. Uh, look, I would defer to the infrastructure experts on this panel. I don't really have anything much to contribute, yeah. except to say that it does seem like a massive oversight not to have factored in climate change, which has not just come up lately. This has been around for a long time. What, what would you say to um, Nick there, Tim? Yeah, I mean, we can see in kind of the foreshadowing of the budget that will come out uh, tomorrow is that this kind of no-frills idea that we're only going to fix the infrastructure, but we're not mm. going to build in anything else. So we're already going back down that path yes. of of just building what we already have and not looking towards the future. The the issue, Tim, Wallace and Nicky, as well, is that we're not even maintaining our roads uh, at the levels that we are. You know, we're we're we're, mainta- we're spending less on maintenance than we are depreciating them significantly. So everything is going backwards in the space, and it's of course that impacts climate resilience massively. So I think somebody somewhere, you know, this is going to require political leadership is going to have to well, grab this. We, we need we need we need uh, Tim. Uh, out-of-the-box solutions on how to massively upgrade uh, our roading infrastructure and our general infrastructure. The, the report here, Waka Kutahi, has not been factoring climate change and the need for resilience into many of its transport projects. And we had a we had a panellist on, uh, sorry, a guest on about three weeks ago who said something quite extraordinary. They said, well, think, think, think of some really unique ideas. For example, how to pay for this. What about... A capital gains tax, ring-fenced, that money goes to climate-related costs. So you have a massive chunk of money there, Tim. Yeah, I mean, I think we can find the money to do this. Mm. It's just a matter of putting it there. And part of it is maybe scaling back on some of these massive infrastructure projects we have planned. We're going to spend 30 Forty billion dollars on a bridge or a light rail here and there, making those smaller projects and using that money to build in resilience. Okay, 
Very interesting. Dr. Welsh, um, may, we may even hear more about that tomorrow. Um, there's Tim Welsh there uh, at the School of Architecture and Planning. It must be just on a final note on this, Tim. Uh, sorry, Nick. It must be um, a bit of a never-ending headache for your organisation to have to deal with this. It must be almost daily. Oh, it is, but of course it's something that every New Zealander now is having to deal with. Uh, this is upon us, and it's about the quality of all our built public infrastructure, and it's something that is going to increasingly impact our daily lives. Now, until we work out how we're going to deal with that the best way possible, I think um, it's only going to get worse. But the best thing to do is to do what you're doing, and that's to shine a light on it and for to get Kiwis to start thinking about how we can adapt. Okay, very good. Now, um, your budget wish list are coming through. I want to sprinkle them throughout the show tomorrow, so keep those coming and some wonderful ones coming through here, uh, some, a, a variety of responses. Um, Subsidise community energy grids and e-bikes. This will help those most in need also free bus fares, so a, quite a wish list there. What else have we got? Um, my wish is no income tax on the first 10k to begin with, and this person wants to remove GST from essential uh, food items. Keep those coming to 101, or you can email the panel at rnz.co.nz and we'll um, put them out through, throughout the show tomorrow. It is 25 past four, and Nikki Bazant and Nick Leggett with me this afternoon. I wanted to come to this just briefly. I know that, Nikki, you wanted to raise this because you had issues or wanted to talk about it. Uh, globally renowned businesswoman Martha Stewart, and we all know Martha Stewart, <laughs> made Sports Illustrated swimsuit history on Monday. Now, why did she make history? The 81 was revealed as the oldest cover model in the publication's history. And you wanted to bring this up, Nikki. You had mixed feelings about it. Oh, what, what, yeah. What's mixed? Isn't this a celebration? I've got complicated feelings about it, Wallace. And the listeners need to see the images, so I hope you go and look up the, the images here. Yes, so it's complicated for many reasons, partly because, yes, it, representation is important. It's great to have older women visible in the media and someone who's 81 in this context. That's a, that's a good thing to see because obviously we are not... We don't disappear when we get older, but you might think that looking at the media and the way that older women are represented. So, so that's, this is great. That's one thing, so that's great. But the way it's been done, I wish I wish they hadn't photoshopped the crap out of her, and I wish they hadn't posed her and styled her in a way that makes her look like a coquettish 20-year-old. It's, it's very much as if they're trying to make an 81-year-old woman appeal to a kind of a generic male gaze and it's very conflicting for me that it's very problematic for me that why why would they do this why would they not let us see it's an 81 year old woman sports illustrated i know they they all have this it's it's a it's a it's a cover yeah but why could we not see a woman looking real like why could we not see a woman her real body and her real skin martha would say that is real that's me but this, you need to see the photoshopping, the level of the level of uh, of manipulation that these images have had. It's not real, and and for many women who are older, and even women who are my age, looking at that, go, that is unrealistic. That is not how women actually look, and it's it's just perpetuating the impossible beauty, Nick, beauty standards that we are supposed to live up to, Nick, whatever age we are. 
What was it that Nikki said before about not having any expertise in this area and pleading the fifth? Um, <laughs> I, look, I, I'm, I, I'm not particularly moved by it. I think it is good to show a, a wider representation of age um, with these kind of uh, publications and seeing people actually active and, and part of... Um, and so isn't it the overriding uh, idea that we must be left with? Here you have an 81-year-old on the cover of a major publication, Sports Illustrated Swimsuit, no less. Yeah, but that... Who doesn't whole... look anything like a, an 81-year-old, yeah. which is Have the point that Nikki's Have you ever seen an 81-year-old looking like? And also that, that whole thing, the Sports Illustrated Swimwear Edition, that is... It's a little bit of an artefact of another era. Yeah, way, what's with that? It? I was wondering why it's still... Why, why, it's still it's, even a thing. Yeah. yeah because it's I thought t- it went with page three. It's associated <laughs> with those supermodels of the 90s and the early Y2K era and the impossible bodies mm. and, the, you know, a, a very generic look. I don't know. It just I've, I've put this on my Instagram today and I've had a lot of women message me and say, yeah, I feel really yeah, what the was same. The, what was the general sentiment? Oh, why can't we be celebrated for our brains and our expertise? And she is a mogul. Yeah. Martha Stewart is a multi-millionaire mogul survivor. She has done other interviews. She's got incredible power. Why can't she be celebrated for her power and her, um, and her mana, I guess, and not her body and her face? Was it a good article? I haven't. I've only seen the behind-the-scenes stuff on the website about the shoot. And well, there, there you go. You didn't even read. You haven't I, even you, read it's it. It's the images, Wallace. It's the images. It's the it's the photos that are problematic for me. You're on the. Pan- I'll be interested to see what other people think. Yes. Okay. That is. Uh, Maybe I'm overreacting. Go, go and have a look. Uh, that's a Martha Stewart who has made a history by being the oldest cover model in the publication's history. Be interested to hear what you uh, make. Of that, 2101. You can email the panel at rnz.co.nz. And the first one in OMG, I've just looked at Martha's images. They are horrendous. Uh, <laughs> you're on the panel, RNZ National. Time for headlines. Wow, I thought she'd look better than me. Okay, thank you, Wallace. See, there exactly, you go. that's the problem, though. What, what, what? Because she should look like an 81 year old woman. Well, she should looks she? like a 40. She looks incredible. She, yeah. Honestly. Amazing, Martha. Go, Martha! (laughs) I'm in her corner.